If you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn. We're going to start, at least, in the letter to the Romans um, in chapter 4. On October um, 31st, so we are actually on the, I think it's the 504th um, anniversary to the day, uh, which Martin Luther, this Augustinian monk, uh, posted his 95 theses on um, what was the, the Wittenberg Castle Church uh, door. And um, largely, he was uh, wanting to begin a scholarly conversation uh, by doing this. Uh, the, his indulgences were written in Latin, um, and so this was the, the language that the, uh, the educated would speak. So this was meant to serve as a, the, the beginning point of a conversation um, about some needed reforms uh, within the, the medieval, uh, the, the Church of the Middle Ages. Um, it was meant to be a conversation starter. He largely focused on the practice of selling indulgences uh, for the forgiveness of sins, and he, he wanted to show how this was contrary to the New Testament, how this actually undermined um, the work of Jesus through his atoning death on the cross. However, uh, one of the technological advances of the age, you know, 50, 70 years before, was the invention of the printing press. So thanks to a Mr. Gutenberg, um, those theses that had been posted were copied, translated into the local languages, and mass-produced. And this triggered what came to what we have come to uh, know now as the Reformation. It triggered uh, what was meant to be what Luther intended, really, to be a renewal of the church. But he was declared as a heretic, and so um, this inevitably led to this this uh, separation uh, within the Catholic Church and, and the creation, the formation of Protestantism. And we are. Um, uh, part of the evangelical Presbyterian denomination. And so we're one of those branches of, of Christianity that flows through the Reformation, beginning with Luther, especially we, we would trace ourselves back through the reformer, John Calvin. Calvin's really a second-generation reformer. Um, but we, we kind of trace ourselves through his uh, work and, and then through the, the Scottish um, uh, Reformation and John Knox, who established Presbyterianism. And Presbyterianism, is, is, that's a fancy word, and it's very confusing to a lot of people, but it just comes from the Greek presbyter, which translated just means elder. And all Presbyterianism means is that we are churches that are governed. It's about how we're governed. We're governed by elders versus, say, a bishop or instead of a congregation as a whole. So we elect a representative group, our elders, to serve as our leaders. So Presbyterianism is about how we are um, governed. This morning, we're looking at one of the mottos or one of the formulas that was coined by Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator. And, and this just translated uh, into English just means simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Okay, Simultaneously a saint and a sinner, something like that. Simultaneously just, justified, and a sinner. Uh, we'll have multiple texts this morning, but I, I want to begin with Romans um, chapter 4. And so if you would stand for the reading and hearing of the Word of God. 
Paul writes. This is Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name. We come now before you to hear your word. We ask that according to your marvelous grace, that you would grant understanding and increased faith to our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. We ask this not because we're deserving, but for the sake of your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what I intend to do this morning is to work through um, these case studies. Um, The first one is just the case study that Paul presents us with here, the the case study concerning David from the Old Testament. The second will be a case study concerning Paul himself. Um, Well, And and actually, I'm going to start with a historical case study, Martin Luther, and then David, and then Paul. Before we just arrive at just a few remarks of, you know, what does this mean in terms of how we approach um, this problem of sin in our lives? So before I get right to the text, I want to talk a little more about Martin Luther um, and about his troubled conscience. Um, uh, just prior to the worship, the um, Sunday school was watching the insanity of God. Well, thinking about Luther's behavior here, you might refer to this as the insanity of Martin Luther. So Luther was born in 1483 in Saxony. His father, of course, wanted him to be a lawyer. But when, on his way home from the university, he was thrown to the ground by a bolt of lightning, Luther cried out to St. Anne for help. And if she granted this help, that he would become a monk. Well, he was spared, and he fulfilled his vow by joining an Augustinian monastery. In 1512, Luther earned his doctorate of theology and taught the Bible chapter by chapter at the University of Wittenberg. And as an aside, um, and this kind of gives you a sense of of Luther the man, he would go on after he was um, uh, excommunicated from the the Catholic Church, he would go on to marry a former nun by the name of Katie von Bora. And in a wedding invitation to a friend, he wrote this, I am to be married Thursday, my Lord Katie and I invite you to send a barrel of your best Turgal beer. Yeah, to the point, right? (laughs) And if it isn't any good, you'll have to drink it all yourself. (laughs) No pressure there. And and I love this other quote. He, He says this about his wife. I would not exchange Katie for all of France or all of Venice because God has given her to me. And besides, other women have worse faults. (laughs) He had a way with words. (laughs) Not sure he was quite the ladies' man, but um, all right. 
Luther was blessed with a brilliant mind. Um, Everyone could see this. Uh, He was teaching even before he received his doctorate. He was also troubled by a very sensitive conscience. His conscience plagued him. His understanding of the perfect majesty and holiness of God, um, it just haunted him. It terrified him because he was very self-aware. He knew that in in his own heart, that he was plagued by all kinds of temptations and all kinds of, uh, of desires to give himself to idolatry. He is noted for saying at one point, love God. The truth is, sometimes I hate him. And the reason he said this is he knew he was commanded to love God to, with all of his heart, with all of his mind, uh, uh, soul, and strength. And he also knew he could not do this faithfully for even five minutes. As a result, this thought of having unforgiven sin and falling into the hands of a perfectly holy, transcendent, awesome God, it terrified him. Because of this, Luther met with his superior to confess his sins nearly every day. Confession was a required discipline of all the monks, but not every day. Probably more like once a week. And then these confessions would normally, you know, you go into the confessional and they would take just a few minutes followed by some, you know, usually perfunctory uh, 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 penance requirements. But not for Luther. Not wanting even a single sin to go unconfessed, his confessions could go on for hours. And he did it every day. He was wearing his confessor out. And because of this, um, Luther met with his superior every day to confess his sins. Um, and his confessor was a priest by the name of Stoppitz. Stoppitz is quoted as saying, look here. If you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parasite. I had to look that one up. Killing of parents. Blasphemy, adultery, instead of all these peccadilloes. That was the response of his father confessor. Luther was traumatized by the sense of God's holiness, combined with the knowledge, because he was an expert in the law, that God does not grade on the curve. God does not compare us and our behavior with others. He compares us with his own perfect law. And so he was faced with a spiritual dilemma, uh, Luther, that is, that he couldn't solve. How could a perfectly just God receive unrighteous sinners? And even if there was only one unconfessed sin, how could he receive this sinner with unpardoned sin? And for Luther, there seemed to be no solution. The solution didn't come overnight. It came just as Luther was studying uh, the New Testament. And specifically, he was working his way through the letter to the Romans. And uh, his biographer, Roland Baton, uh, writes this, uh, quoting Luther. Night and day, Luther says, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that, quote, the just shall live by faith, unquote. Then I grasped 
that the justice of God is not, is that righteousness by which through grace, it is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and a greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. And then Luther would go on to coin this, this phrase, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously righteous and a sinner, to describe the ongoing spiritual condition of Christian believers. And so this leads us to Romans. This leads us to what Paul, and, and I'm going to cite, I could have cited other places where he talks about justification, but I, I decided to use this little citation concerning David. And David, because I see him, um, uh, so prior to this, this citation of David, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about Father Abraham and how Father Abraham was justified not through his, his works, uh, not by his obedience, but by faith. And God reckons this faith to Abraham as righteousness. But in Abraham's case, you know, the way this is written, it's, it's the idea that, you know, Abraham just simply made a good decision. He, he decided not to trust in his, his ability to earn God's favor and, and uh, acceptance, but rather to believe God. But with David, the, this principle of justification is taken a step further because David, who was justified as a young boy, who already as a shepherd of the sheep was um, praying his heart out to God, who uh, is anointed um, by the prophet Samuel as a teenager because we're told God doesn't look at the outward person, but he sees the heart. And David expresses his, um, his uh, being a, a regenerate, believing man um, prior to his great sins. And in that context, he writes about his justification. So in verse 5, we see the basic principle laid out. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that is, who believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith, and this is the language of, this is kind of a, a, a technical theological principle, a, a, a doctrinal truth. His, uh, the one who believes in him, who justifies ungodly, his faith is counted. That counting is justification language, is counted or reckoned as righteousness. And here we come to this grand doctrine. It just set Luther free. It, it just removed the, the burden of trying to, you know, be on that gerbil, um, uh, the hamster wheel, and, and trying to earn God's favor and acceptance, knowing that you never could do it uh, well enough. Well, what was his solution? It was when Luther realized the righteousness that God needs the righteousness we need in order to stand before him, a holy God, in his presence, is not a righteousness that is generated from the inside through human effort or, or human ability. It's not a righteousness that we can ever earn by being good enough. 
Rather, it is a righteousness that is from outside. It is an alien righteousness, as theologians describe it. It is the righteousness of Jesus that is granted to us as a gift. And the way we receive this gift, note that even that language, gift versus a wage. A wage is something you earn. Romans is very clear. That's not how this gift of righteousness comes. It comes as a gift. And the way, the instrument by which we receive this gift is the instrument of faith. We believe God. Um, we, we commit ourselves to the, the, to the truth that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, that he is the God-man, that he lived the life we couldn't live perfectly, that he died to pay for our sins. When we believe that, we commit ourselves to that principle, and by committing ourselves to that principle, we're, we're in a certain sense, we're stepping out into Christ. And that means that we're also stepping away from any effort to try to earn God's grace, to earn his pleasure. And the result of this ultimately is not only is, this is just so strange to Western ears, but this act of faith, this act of reaching out for this gift is then we're counted, we're reckoned as righteous, even though in our condition, we're not righteous. Even though I'm going to think things, I'm going to say things, I'm going to do things that, just to put it uh, very lightly, do not bring glory (laughs) to God or to Christ. They are not Christ-like. And nevertheless, I am reckoned and counted as righteousness. This is a a kind of judicial or an accounting term. It's like when um, the defendant appears before the judge, and at the end of the trial, the judge declares, I find the defendant either guilty or not guilty. And in this case, it's not guilty. (laughs) And it doesn't matter what the truth is. Once the judge declares that person not guilty, that person no longer, at least on those charges, has to ever worry about the police, you know, coming to his door in the early morning, you know, while he's still asleep and, and pounding on the door saying, get up, we're here to take you away. No longer will that person ever have to worry about that. He has been declared not guilty. And that's what this justification is, is this idea that God declares us not just simply not guilty, that would just be forgiven, but righteous with the righteousness of Jesus so that we can have confidence now as we stand before him um, uh, and as we come before him in prayer, as we worship before him and ultimately stand in his presence in verse 6 through 8, again, we, we notice some of these key words, um, this, this language of justification, of being counted righteous um, and, 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 um, uh, and being blessed. So uh, verses 4 through, or I mean 6 through 8, just as David. And so what Paul's saying is that David actually experienced this principle and he understood it um, when he was writing Psalm 32. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, there's that justification language, God counts righteous. They're not actually righteous, you see. They're declared righteous, but it's a real righteousness nonetheless. He counts righteousness apart from works. And then he cites David from Psalm 32. And here David writes this, "'Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven.'" David knew something 
about lawless deeds and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not, and here's the language of justification that, that triggers Paul's, you know, his antenna when he's thinking about this, this, this glorious truth. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's a quote from Psalm 32. And what Paul is pointing out is that David, who committed sins, think adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered um, through war by having the troops pull back intentionally from the man if they got too close to the enemy walls so that uh, Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, would be killed. This is kind of a, a, a form of murder. David committed the kinds of sins for which there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament to cover. The sacrifices of the Old Testament did not cover technically these sins that were considered um, uh, uh, intentional and what the, the language of being high-handed, these high-handed sins. There, there was no sacrifice for these sins. And, and I think that's why David in Psalm 51 said, you know, if there was some sacrifice that you required, I would give it. But what you ought actually require is a humble and contrite spirit. And what David seems to understand is is there's this principle of grace that was running beneath the old covenant, that was running beneath the law of Moses. And the way this principle of grace operated is, is that as they placed their faith in the promises of God, as they placed their faith in what was prefigured by the temple and by the sacrifices and by the feasts and festivals. That is, it prefigured the coming one who would offer his life as an atonement for sins. And then you have the promises of the prophets that were more um, explicit in the coming Messiah King. As the Old Testament saints believed these promises, even though they were shadowy, even though it would have been difficult to, to have any clarity about what they actually meant, but to the degree that they believed the promises, promises about a coming Savior, a Messiah King, God reckoned it to them, as he did with Abraham, as he does here with David, as righteousness. And David expresses this in terms of, ah, how blessed, how joyous it is to have your sins covered. And that was David's experience. Now, it's not to say that his sins did not have painful consequences. They did. Ultimately, David would lose the child uh, that he had uh, with Bathsheba, and he would go on to lose three more sons. And his one son would rise up against him and try to usurp the throne. His sin led to painful consequences. But in terms of his relationship with the Lord, he was forgiven. All of this, and and just let me highlight, David, it could be said of David that he was simultaneously righteous and a sinner. And, And part of my point is when he committed the sins of adultery and this kind of murder, he was justified. He was already saved, to use that kind of language. And what this this example of David shows us is that justifying grace, this this gift of of having uh, this righteousness counted towards us, of being reckoned righteous, is a gift 
that is irrevocable. It's a gift that is unbreakable. It's unconditional. Even the high-handed, proud sins of David did not cancel his justification. It did not cancel his uh, standing with the Lord. And if that is true of David, I think it's partly what Paul's, you know, intending here. If it's true of David, it's also true of all of those who humbly place their faith and their trust in Jesus as Lord and as Savior. All of this is true in the case of Paul. Paul understood himself to be both righteous by grace while at the same time frustrated by the sin, the continuing sin in his own life. 1 Timothy uh, 1.15, and here the Apostle Paul describes his own um, situation to Timothy. Here he writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So what's the one qualification that you need to have in order to receive this justifying grace, this this righteousness? Well, you got to be a sinner, (laughs) which is strangely good news, right? I can check that box. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom, and now Paul's referring to himself, of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am. And notice that verb, I am. It's present tense. I am the chief of sinners is what Paul is saying. Now, I do think he's referring back to when he was persecuting the church, where he oversaw the, um, the execution of the saintly deacon Stephen, um, that he put people in, in prison, probably um, caused many to lose their jobs and had some who were tortured. Maybe others were killed too. We don't know for sure. But, but probably Paul is thinking about um, his sins prior to Christ, but it doesn't end there. He still sees himself as falling very short. And he tells us why. And this is in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the apostle writes, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay? This is so important. There are some who think that a, either they have, that it's possible to arrive at, at, at sometimes, um, um, uh, that's that called like this entire sanctification. It's kind of a technical term, but essentially what that means is they believe that once they receive Jesus and the, the Spirit comes to live in them, that they should be morally perfect, that they should morally sin no longer. Um, and sometimes this is just referred to as perfectionism. Some denominations have adopted this as a principle. But know what the Apostle Paul says. It's, while it's, it's particularly when the Spirit abides in the believer that now we have these two principles that are at work in opposition to each other. He describes it as the, the, the principle of the flesh, the, um, the desires of the flesh, 
um, which are opposed to this principle of the Holy Spirit. And what he is saying is, is that even after we receive Jesus, there are certain things that are no longer true, and at least one thing that continues to be true. The penalty of sin has been taken away. Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. The power of sin, that is, prior to Christ, you basically had you know, one kind of boss inside of you, driving and directing you, usually in a selfish um, security orientation, okay? And that leads to all forms of idolatry and sin, a resistance to God, that, this principle of the flesh. But prior to coming to Christ, you're in slavery to that principle. You're under the dominion of this principle of sin. And so there is a power of sin that you are um, uh, uh, under the control of, under the power of. But once you receive Christ, and once the Spirit comes into you, not just the penalty of sin is taken away, but the power of sin is broken. Okay? the power That means... You may hear sin yelling at you, jump, <laughs> leap, <laughs> go back to your old ways of doing things, you know? Oh, wouldn't this be fun? You hear that voice, but you no longer have to follow. That, that voice no longer has power or dominion over you. So now you have a choice. I can either choose to follow Christ, do what God wants me to do in the power of the Spirit, or I can choose to follow that old nagging voice. And the reason you hear that voice is that there's a third thing that remains true. We wish it didn't remain true, but it does. We wish that the presence of sin was obliterated when we come to Christ. But it's very clear in the New Testament that this has not arrived yet. That we still have this principle, the presence of sin. And don't think of it just in terms of literally your body, the physical flesh. But it's this principle that abides in our hearts, it abides in our minds, it abides um, uh, in our will. It is still present. It may be tied around the mat. You know, you think of that old illustration of of, um, that that tyrannical um, captain, uh, Captain Ahab, yelling at the mates, swab the decks, you know, um, know, hoist the the sails, and and on and on, just terrorizing uh, the sailors. But now, imagine after there's a mutiny... They don't throw Ahab overboard. He's still, he's still present, but he's tied to the mast. But he can still yell. He can still make quite a commotion. And so as soon as they hear, swab the decks, you can imagine they're just it's such an ingrained pattern. They just leap, you know, even though he's tied, he's, he's bound to that mast. You don't have to obey that voice any longer. But it's still there. It's still present. Now, here's the second thing you need to understand. This presence, this sin principle, sometimes referred to as a sinful nature, though it is present, it is no longer your identity. Paul can, and, and we'll come to this um, a little bit, but, but your primary identity is the new creation. Your primary identity is now that you are a son and daughter of, of, of God. Your primary identity is now you are righteous. You, this is why over and over when the New Testament uses the term saints, it's not talking about the extra holy people. It's just simply talking about believers. That's your identity. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are noble and royal. You are a, 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 a royal priesthood as Peter describes us. 
That is our, that's our primary identity. And so now when we sin, it's not something that is not consistent with our, 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 our strongest identity. The desires of the flesh, they certainly uh, include not just the, the, the physical, but also our, our minds and wills and hearts. And it is this principle that Paul says in Galatians, it keeps you from doing the things you want to do. We believe not in perfectionism. We believe in progressive sanctification. That is that over the course of a life, as we get better at fighting and trusting Christ, trusting in the Spirit, fighting the flesh, that we will, um, we will uh, come to look and, 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 and act and think more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will come, we will improve. We'll get better. But usually that better is more like, it, it's not like this. It's, it's a roller coaster. <laughs> and so you can be down five years down the road and you start thinking, oh, I'm doing well. And God says, you know what? There's a pride problem here. <laughs> and so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let them see what happens when I just kind of withdraw my, my, my spirit and, and allow them to fall on their face. And they're like, oh, that was so stupid. And yes, it was stupid. And I think partly it's for God. God allows that to humble us, to remind us that, uh, that we are 100% dependent on his grace and on the power of his Holy Spirit. I would encourage you, I don't have time to read the passage from Romans 7, but I encourage you, it's in your outline, to take some time this week and to read that passage where Paul is much more personal uh, about his ongoing battle with sin um, as a believer. And this leads to this concluding thought. How do we address the ongoing challenge of sin? Well, Romans uh, 8, so just um, skipping um, ahead, if you were at Romans 4, to Romans 8, 12 and 13. Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. And when he says debtors, he's he's like, we're not obligated to the flesh. Now he says that, why? Because this principle of the flesh, he's not talking about, you know, we have a physical body. No, he's saying this principle, the sin, the presence of sin that, that remains with us is a continuing reality, but we're not obligated to it. We are not obligators, we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, here's what happens, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit, so here's the first principle, even as Christians, this battle with with the presence of sin, these temptations in our life is not something we can do in the flesh. We can't generate this just through human effort. We must recognize our need for the Spirit of God, for the Holy Spirit to be at work within us, expressing the Spirit's power in and through us as we combat this sin. Uh, And this is a daily battle. This is not weekly, not monthly, not an annual, you know, uh, time where the flesh rises up. No, this is a daily battle that we must fight in the power of the Spirit. And he says, um, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you, and here's um, this kind of violent language, you put to death, 
This is what's required. Sin is still serious business. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, how do we do that? How do we, the old language, mortify the flesh is the way the older uh, writers would describe it. How do we mortify? How do we put to death the, the deeds of the flesh? Well, uh, there are at least uh, two things here. One, we have to recognize our need, again, for spiritual help, for God's grace, his strength. And this is where those spiritual disciplines are critical for us. Disciplines of prayer, of meditating and studying the word of God, of, re- of being committed to weekly gathering of the saints in worship, of regular fellowship, with one another. And then the, the cultivation, you know, of community. Why community? Because as we're with other believers, one, we're being sharpened as iron sharpens iron. And secondly, as we develop these layers of community, it helps keep us accountable. It helps keep us accountable. And if we've fallen, you know, that, that community around says, you know, I see this in you. <laughs> I see that you're kind of veering a little, you know, off the path. Um, and I just want to know, can I pray for you? What can I do to come alongside you and help you to be who Christ wants you to be? See, those layers of community also help um, uh, bring accountability. And there'll be some cases, one or two people perhaps in your life where you've made a kind of an agreement, say, look, I'm going to be, there's this area in my life that, boy, Satan just, he knows where to aim, um, where to aim his uh, temptation darts. And I just need you to say, how are you doing in that area? Just to help us to stay. And, and, and this is a person who can offer grace, but also just a word of, of accountability to us. This is putting to death. It's, putting to death is an active, um, uh, ener- it's where we must be intentional and uh, energetic in fighting sin in our lives. But what do you do when you fall? What do you do when you fail? Well, this is part of that spiritual discipline. This is part of that fight of faith. And that is, you need to be a spiritual cat, not a spiritual pig. I've said this before. What's a spiritual pig? Well, a pig, pig falls into the mud. What does the pig do? It wallows. That's not who we want to be. What happens when the cat falls into the mud? Just, it leaps out immediately. (laughs) You know, it's, it's cleaning itself off. Part of the fight of faith is, and part of persevering in the faith. This is, for those of you who are young, this is, this is like, this is what old people do. And you probably don't know it. They persevere, even if they've sinned seven times 70 in the same day, they persevere by going to the Lord and saying, Lord, let me admit to you and confess that what I did there, what I thought or what I said, was wrong. It was sin. And I, I thank you, Lord, that, you, that Jesus died to forgive that. Help me to be the person you want me to be. And that fight, you're going to th- see, if you're younger, you're thinking, well, you can't keep doing that because you, you only have so many, you know, opportunities to be wrong. No, part of godly Christian maturity is learning to persevere. When you fall, you fall at the foot of the cross and you see God's uh, uh, his mercy and grace anew. And that actually is one of the great marks of a genuine believer. There is good news and there is bad news for the Christian believer. 
The good news is that God declares us to be perfectly righteous, forgiven by faith in Christ. But the bad news is that sin nevertheless remains, and it will remain to the day we die. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can make progress so that like John Newton, we can say, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful, Lord, for the Reformation that highlighted uh, these central truths of of justification while at the same time uh, still remaining a sinner. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the good news of the gospel and how it equips and strengthens us to be who you want us to be. And we recognize anew our need for your grace, our need for your spirit to be at work within us. And so we pray these things, not just for our good, but for the sake of your great name, to whom be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.